Opinion. Demonizing sex workers does nothing for society by Margaret Smith, Opinions Editor, February 7, 2020, The Columbian Chronicle. Before X websites, Gentlemen's Clubs, and the Levy District of Chicago, there was always sex workers. When you read the words sex work, what do you think? Of scandalous women? Something illegal? Something wrong? We should immediately follow these thoughts. What should immediately follow these thoughts is this one. Our preconceived and socially influenced ideas about sex work are, are archaic, non-inclusive, and damaging. Again, what should immediately follow these thoughts is this one. Our preconceived and socially influenced ideas about sex work are archaic, non-inclusive, and damaging. Rather, our knee-jerk reaction should be to envision them as hard-working, dedicated professionals who provide a service despite the stigma surrounding their work. Our social conception surrounding sex work has improved slightly with sex, S-E-C-T-S, of younger generations continuing to become more progressive and inclusive, as well as the influx of sex workers as presence on social media platforms such as Twitter and Instagram and designated websites such as Red Umbrella Hosting. Yet there's still a rain cloud that hangs above this faction of workers and what falls from it is sexism, racism, and classism. This is not news to us. To pretend that any line of work is free from these things is to sugarcoat the society we live in. To undo centuries of said blunders, we must start our work at the beginning. Sex work as defined by the World Health Organization is the provision of sexual services for money or goods. This definition does justice to the very basis of the idea, but sex work is much more expansive than that. Sexual services can be carried out in person or via the internet. It can range from, from niche to mundane. Regardless, the profession can often be dangerous for sex workers, whether it is the clients they interact with or the legality surrounding their profession. But who are the men, women, many of whom are transgender and non-binary and non-binary people and LGBTQI plus people who make up this workforce? They are likely parents. Okay, let me say that again. But who? But who are the men? women, many of whom are transgender and non-binary people and LGBTQI plus people who make up this workforce, they are likely parents, siblings, cousins, and neighbors, but more importantly, they are people. The key to rewiring how we think about sex work and how we, how we act towards sex workers starts with normalizing their existence. And the key to normalizing them is to humanize them. Sex workers are often viewed as objects or things that merely exist like products on shelves. When we humanize the people behind the screens, the dancers in the clubs, and the voices coming out of the receiver, we must also demand that people who harm them face consequences. In Canada, Estacio Galiz, a convicted killer, was released on parole in January and given permission to satiate 
his sexual needs as reported by Vice Thursday, January 30th. It was on this parole that Galise met sex worker Marilyn Levesque at a hotel. Levesque agreed to meet him there because the massage parlor where she was employed had previously banned Galise after past violence toward other masseuses. It was there that Galise violently killed Levesque and later turned himself into the police. He was charged with second-degree murder and is currently awaiting a court date later this month. The legality of the actions taken on both parties is bad, makes it difficult for the law to pinpoint Galise as the real menace to society in this case. As sex worker Sandra Wesley said in the Thursday, January 30th Fox article, if sex work wasn't criminalized, it would be easy to send Galise back to jail sooner. The apparent demonization here serves no one save for people like Galise who use and abuse sex workers like inanimate objects. Federal decriminalization of sex work needs to accompany our social shift toward accepting sex workers as human workers and not criminals. Lest they continue to be harassed and abused by those with whom they professionally interact, including both clients and police. Additionally, the language we use matters and therefore it needs to be respectful to the people to whom it refers. Say sex workers instead of the dated term prostitutes. At the mention of sex work, do not bring sex trafficking into the conversation. These two things are vastly different and equating them adds unnecessary stigma. So stop the stigma and stop the demonization of people out in the world simply earning a living just like you and me. Margaret Smith, the opinions editor for ColumbiaChronicle.com, has spoken all of my thoughts. Let's go some more. Humanizing sex workers? Guest blogger Marco DeMello on October 12, 2011. Catherine sent in a link to a series of ads created by an organization called Stepping Stone Nova Scotia. Their mission is to advocate on behalf of and offer resources and services to sex workers in the maritime province of Canada. Sociological images, right? And it's called the societypages.org. The ads, as you can see, depict quotes by friends or family members of sex workers, I'm proud of my tramp raising two kids on our own, which are intended to humanize sex workers. The bottom of each ad reads, sex workers are brothers slash daughters slash mothers too. They're also intended to shock the reader to really thinking about sex workers. They say prostitutes, but I'm gonna say sex worker to be morally consistent. The juxtaposition of words like tramp and hooker with the white middle-class faces of the speakers makes the viewers question our culture's ease with using those terms and force us to see the person behind the sex work. Stepping Stone Executive Director Renee Ross points out that every time a sex worker is killed, sex workers have mortality rate 40 times higher than the Canadian national average. Media accounts emphasize that the victim was a sex worker but not think, but not that she or he or they was also a mother, daughter, friend, and for example, animal lover. Like liking guinea pigs, dogs, and the like. 
by thinking of sex workers only in terms of their stigmatized occupation, we don't have to care about them as people. In New Mexico, where I live, the remains of 11 women and the unborn fetus of one was found buried on a mesa outside of Albuquerque in 2009. The women had disappeared between 2003 and 2005, and most, according to police, were involved with drugs and slash or prostitution. Why did it take the police so long to find the bodies of these women, and why do their murders still remain unsolved? Some observers have suggested that because the women were or alleged to be sex workers, there was less pressure to find them after they went missing or to solve their murders once their bodies were found. As long as the victims are sex workers and the non-sex worker public can feel safe from the knowledge that they're not at risk. We know that prostitution is dangerous, so it's expected that some of them will die grisly deaths and be buried like trash on a mess outside of town. I love the motivation behind the ads and they do make me smile. I hope that they have the effect that Stepping Stone intends, making people think of sex workers as people, not trash. But they're also funny and I wonder if they will also have an unintended effect of making sex workers seem like a joke. This week I watched the Comedy Central roast of Charlie Sheen. During the roast, most of the jokes dealt with his well-known history with drug use and prostitution and prostitute hooker and whore were used as punchlines in the majority of the jokes and each whore reference and incited additional laughter. Sure, many of the women that Sheen paid to have sex with were doubtless high class call girls paid well and not living on the street. But we also know that at least some of these women as well as the non-prostitute females in his life were subject to violence and threats of violence. He is alleged to have beaten, shot, shoved, and thrown to the floor a number of women over the years. But because many of these women were sex workers or porn stars, which is the next best thing in parentheses, the women were quote unquote asking for it. Let's hope that Stepping Stone's campaign does some good, making us think about sex workers as people rather than punchlines and faceless victims. Okay, uh, Margo DeMello has a PhD in culture, anthropology, and teaches anthropology, cultural studies, and sociology at Central New Mexico Community College. Her research areas include body modification, adornment, and human animal studies. If you'd like to write a post for sociological images, please see our guidelines for guest bloggers. I would say that you know, women are girls and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I misspoke on that. Women are not girls and girls are not women. Women are not girls and girls are not women. So I've always thought of that when it comes to the call girl, like some would not be offended and some would because they're like, hey, you're not respecting the fact that I'm a woman. So I've always been had mixed feelings about that terminology. And prostitution is good. We just have to weed out the dangerous people who make prostitution a bad thing. Prostitution is a good thing. Sex work is a good thing. We just gotta prosecute and criminalize the people attempting to hurt the sex workers. 
Um, and being a porn star is good. Being a sex worker is good. Again, we just gotta annihilate the human rights abuses that happen to sex workers instead of banning sex work and sex workers. And when they say it, but they're also funny. They're not making fun of sex workers. They're saying that the language can cause a comical effect in the socially conscious direction of, oh, sex workers are people. So sometimes people use comedy to as an effective tool to get people's minds changed. Comedians do it all the time. Um, so it says, I'm glad my prostitute made me finish school, sex workers and mothers too. At my wedding, my younger hooker gave the funniest speech, sex workers are brothers too. I'm proud of my tramp recipients of our own sex workers are daughters too. So they're using language that is comparable to really make people think. So they're not trying to degrade anybody that's doing sex work. Okay, so let's... Let's keep, let's keep talking. This is what happens when we humanize sex work to make serial killer secondary. Leah Carroll, March 16, 2020. In the early morning hours of May 1st, 2020, Shannon Gilbert made a panic phone call to 911. Gilbert was working as an escort at the time and had fled her clients' home in Oak Beach, Long Island, telling police that someone was going to call after her. Police and this is May 1st, 2010. Okay. Police and public officials were initially unconcerned about Gilbert's disappearance as a sex worker. They considered her a high risk victim and therefore not worthy of excessive resources. Gilbert remained missing for 19 months till her remains were finally discovered in a marshy area close to where she'd last been seen. On December 11, 2010, a Suffolk County police officer walking his dog along Ocean Park on the south shore of Long Island discovered the skeletal remains of a young woman wrapped in a burlap sack. It wasn't Gilbert, but over next week they found four of our bodies disposed of in a similar manner. Maureen Bernard Barnes, Melissa Bartholomew, Maggie Warren, Amber Lynn Costello. All four women were of small stature like Gilbert and were engaged in sex work at the time of their deaths. Suddenly, Gilbert's disappearance became front page news again as police realized they were dealing with a serial killer. New York Magazine journalist. Robert Coulter saw the attention the case was getting and began wondering what wasn't being covered. Officials were openly disparaging of the women who lost their lives, simply blaming them for their own murders. Coulter set off to find out who these women had been while alive and what circumstances had led them to their fate. He interviewed the women's friends and family members and created an empathetic, meaning empathy, realistic portrait of class, poverty, and bravery that connected these women to large portrait of our society. His book, Lost Girls and Unsolved American History. I hope that the women are not offended by the lost girls. One, if they are, it's understandable. It's revolutionary simply for its treatment of sex workers as human beings and serial killers as, as a secondary story. The book has now been made into a stunning horror movie by Liz Garbus. It's currently streaming on Netflix. We spoke with Coker about the case, his book, and the film adaptation. 
The book goes very in-depth on a number of the people involved in this, but the film is surprisingly effective by showing primarily one perspective. How did that come about? I really had no idea of how I might make Lost Girls into a movie. I really was so focused on it as an ensemble with so many different storylines. It didn't seem feasible to make it a feature, but almost immediately after the book was published, Kevin McCormick, a producer, offered to option the book. And the reason why he came in so quickly is because he had an approach that I never would have considered in a million years, which was to center it all around Mary Gilbert Shannon's mother. Mary was actually really reluctant to the interview for the book and only sat for an interview with me at the last minute. In the book, she comes off as a rather combustible personality, doesn't really like it when things are too peaceful, likes to blow up relationships, and is a pretty great person. And so when when they came to me and said they were going to center the film around Mary, my first reaction was, I never would have thought of that in a million years. But then my second reaction was, of course. She was, the, she was the one who got the most attention on the case and her ordeal and everything she had gone through is a great way of telling the story of what they all went through. And so I was amazed and really pleased and said yes immediately. My colleague Annie Ann Cohen has called this an entire true crime film in the sense that it focused so much on the lives of these quote-unquote lost girls, but it's lost for a better term, and the people they left behind. That feels incredibly true to the book. Would you agree? What got me hooked on this subject in the beginning was a very precarious situation that all the family members were in. There, these were people who were not sex workers themselves, but had close relationships with all the victims. And when those people disappeared, you know, nobody seemed to care. They never signed up for this, but they had to become advocates and champions of their lost loved ones because for years, nobody listened. And then suddenly when the bodies were found, they got tied up in a serial killer case. Everybody, including people like Nancy Grace, were beating, was beating a path to their door. And that was both exhilarating and troubling for them. They were happy to finally be getting attention, but terrified that it would lead to nothing. And then finally saw their daughters and sisters being dragged through the mud and blamed for their own deaths and what, and that forced them to become advocates for overlooked and objectified and vilified sex workers. So that was a great area that I really wanted to write about, that they didn't ask for this. I also wanted to write about the women's lives and talked about what motivated them to make decisions that no, that not everybody would make. And I'm really, really pleased that the filmmakers picked up on that and really followed through on that quite nicely. This is, there is something of an expectation with true crime, a trial, true crime in quotation, a trial, an undiscovered piece of evidence, something that follows a typical formula, but you wrote a book about a potential serial killer and no killer has yet been caught. It's a book and a film about dead women in which they feel very much alive. What was the reaction to that? Well, if you look at the Amazon reviews or the Goodreads reviews, the one that is most liked is somebody who says there's nothing about the case in this book. But I think we're in a period now that's just more hospitable to unconventional takes on crime stories. Just in the last year, there's a Ted Bundy movie about his victims and a Charles Manson movie about the women in Charles Manson's family, in quotations. That environment didn't exist when I was writing Lost Girls. Or lost women, if you will. I remember as I was writing it, trying to look around to find a comparable book, unconventional, relatively high-minded true crime. And the last one that has been very successful was Dave Cullen's Columbine, which had come out several years earlier. But suddenly, within a year of lost girls, or lost women, if you will, coming out, we had Serial and the Jinx and Making a Murderer. And suddenly it became acceptable to come at these stories from a slanted point of view. So I have high hopes that people will accept the movie in that way. I think if people right now aren't ready for a serial killer movie about a killer, they won't ever be. 
Another thing that's changed is our attitude towards sex work. I think it was very important that the book explicitly quote the police saying things like, it's a consolation that the victims are just a bunch of sex workers and stuff like that. Quoting one member of the media standing there on the beach during the press conference and saying, I can't believe they're doing all this for a whore. Nobody was even bothering to disguise the victim blaming. And so calling people out on that was satisfying. That said, I tried to stay on the journalism side of advocacy journalism. I wanted to explore the lives of these women and their decisions in a slightly detached manner and not make the book into a political document. My model is always the book Random Family, where you have women who are making decisions, ones you might not make, but also living lives with far fewer options than you might have. And I don't want to put words in Liz Garbus's mouth, but I think that is one of the things that is on her mind about movies in general. When we allow women to when what we allow women to do and to be like in movies now comfortable we really are with a female protagonist who does things that may not be the best, most admirable things in the world. She was interested in the book because it had a protagonist who was a real human being who was sometimes fucking up, screwing up, and sometimes doing good things. I think Liz's decision to try to dial back everything in the movie that didn't go back to the women themselves and the women's family members and what they were experiencing had a lot to do with that. take all that in because I'm so thankful that people are maturing and how they treat sex workers and that there's more consternation and harshness towards people who are bigoted towards sex workers. So let's go to another one. I'm on a roll. Language matters talking about sex work. One introduction, two language matters, three words that matter. Those are the sections. NSWP.org. Okay, let's go to number one. The way we talk about sex work is anything but neutral. It communicates meaning and influences how people understand our work and create policy about us. The words we use when speaking about sex work, whether in media or legal arguments with our friends or in discussion with a stranger matter. Language use to describe sex work and sex workers varies across and within sex working communities. This speaks to differences in our histories, regional specificities, and how we self-identify. Sex work and sex workers are often framed in very simplistic stereotypes. Sex work and sex workers are often framed in very simplistic and stereotypical ways that erase the complexity of our realities, good or bad, forced or chosen, glamorized or exploitative. When choosing language to talk about sex work, we're trying to balance self-identification, our desire to represent our diversity, and the importance of breaking through stereotypes and binary categories. When our choice of words differs from the beliefs and stereotypes that people have about us, people are quick to discredit us. So how and when we use language depends on who we are talking to. Within sex working communities, we honor the language each of us uses to self-identify. 
We may, however, publicly reject our strategically. We may, however, publicly reject or strategically choose our language to describe ourselves because language can also divide and support public misconceptions of sex workers. Two, language matters. The, this info sheet is a reflection on language that promotes a common goal for sex workers' rights while simultaneously representing our diversity. It is also intended to help non-sex workers who are often contacted by media and lawmakers think about the impact of their language. Sex workers and allies identified the importance of such a reflection at a September 2012 convening. As such, the following is not intended to be directed, but rather to encourage a conversation about language. Language is linguistically and culturally specific, and it means different things when translated into other languages and used in other cultural contexts. Three, words that matter. The following words and phrases presented alphabetically are just a few commonly used to talk about sex work. So you have abolitionists. Some feminists refer to themselves as abolitionists or neo-abolitionists. Abolitionists believe that prostitution is inherently exploitative, violent, and akin to slavery. In this framing, all, in this framing, all sex workers are victims. These feminists seek to eliminate prostitution through various regulations and prohibitions, including a legislative model they call in demand. The term abolition is associated with 18th and 19th century movements to abolish slavery. Not only do sex workers not see our work as akin to slavery, but using this term minimizes and trivializes the experiences of those who have and do endure slavery. Other terms used for the abolitionist position are radical feminists, fundamentalist feminists, or second wave feminists. These terms may be alienating for the many sex workers and sex worker allies who consider themselves feminists, but reject the abolitionist position. Many sex workers use the term prohibitionist feminist, anti-sex worker, anti-sex workers rights feminists to better reflect the abolitionist position. The term prohibitionist highlights support for the use of criminal laws to prohibit behavior seen as immoral or dangerous to society. Anti-sex work feminist draws attention to the agenda of this group, the, abol the, abol the abolition of prostitution rather than the promotion of human and labor rights of sex workers. Again, the, the abolition of prostitution rather than the promotion of human and labor rights of sex workers. Okay, let's make sure I said the word abolition right. Okay, so we're going to go to... Adult sex work, youth sex work, commercial sexual exploitation of youth. Some people do not distinguish between youth sex work and commercial sexual exploitation of youth. Others refer to adult sex work to distance it both from youth sex work and from notions of exploitation. Two things that are often seen as not two, two things that are often seen as synonymous. Specifying adult sex work is simultaneously referring to all youth sex work as exploitation ignores the complexity of our realities. The decision to earn income through sex work is made along the spectrum of options regardless of a person's age. Some people's spectrum is more limited than others, and youth like others confront numerous systemic factors of personal circumstances, including poverty, homelessness, drug use, and mental health. That being said, people exercise agency when making decisions along these spectrums. There's a difference between youth who exercise agency to earn income through sex work and commercial sexual exploitation of youth. In other words, Child sexual abuse is not the same as youth sex work. 
the age at which people are comfortable with youth in the sex industry differs based on our experiences. Some view anyone under 18 working in the industry as exploitation. Some of us began sex working in our teens, while some of us started earning an income through sex work in our 20s, 30s, and beyond. Regardless of our comfort level, different age groups in the sex industry, criminalization is not an effective response to youth in sex work. Often confusion around youth in the sex industry arises because there is no agreement on the definition of youth. There are many laws in different legal domains, labor, criminal, civil, housing, and employment that further people have different rights depending on their age. The rights and definitions of youth and minors vary across the laws. Social service definitions can refer to youth as anyone up to 25 years old. The ambiguity and lack of harmonization amongst these definitions can cause confusion. Criminalization stigma around youth sex work and the conflation of youth and children limit the ability of youth sex workers to access tools that are needed for safer living and working conditions. Uh, consensual or forced sex work. Similarly to adult sex work, people may use this phrase, consensual sex work to distinguish it from forced sex work and to calm the fears of the public who are concerned about decriminalizing non-consensual activity where people do not consent to providing sexual services for money this is abuse or assault, not work. Further, the term consensual Consensual for sex work. I'm sorry. Further, the term consensual evokes. Further, the term consensual evokes an opposite force and risk creating a division between sex workers who are categorized by the public as consenting or forced, which encourages the, which encourages the perspective that certain sex workers should be blamed while others should be saved. Another intended consequence of this phrase is that it obscures the difference between good and bad working conditions, while sex workers can consent to work but can still experience unsafe labor situations. So we may consent to working in sex work, but not consent to working conditions, which we've tried to improve with a focus on evidence-based human rights advocacy. This is this issue of consent for people working in sex work is around agreements for services and conditions of work. Women and girls, merging the experiences of women and girls is a tendency in different social movements in common and common when some people speak about sex workers. This has the effect of infantilizing the experiences of women. This phrase is often employed as an emotional trigger that plays on the stereotypes of young girls and prostitution. It also, it also invisibilizes the experiences of girls by suggesting there's a shared experience of women. Similar to other words that communities have proclaimed in empowering ways, sex workers may refer to the girls as shorthand for working girls. However, used by people outside of our community, this term could have negative connotations. Racialized sex workers, including indigenous sex workers, while sex work refers to a large range of people doing a wide variety of work, it's sometimes important for us to set apart our different experiences to emphasize how intersecting realities position us vis-a-vis -vis the law, clients, work conditions, etc. More specifically, in North American context, the experiences of indigenous sex workers are important to highlight. Indigenous sex workers are at a greater risk of criminalization. 
the disproportionate criminalization of indigenous peoples in this out is the outcome of multiple factors, including deep-seated racism, discrimination over policing, and colonization. Some people use the phrase indigenous and other racialized sex workers to describe sex workers who are racialized. Some sex workers of color or racialized sex workers express concern about this phrase because it appears to create a hierarchy of oppressions. While racialized communities have different experiences of the criminalization of sex work and the sex industry in general, the term other tagged on to racialized sex workers tends to homogenize those differences. The phrase people of color also maintains an incorrect belief that race and culture are only determined by the tone of one's skin. The set of experiences around oppression are felt very differently across communities of racialized sex workers. We need to find ways to speak to the various realities without overshadowing others. The phrase racialized sex workers, including indigenous sex workers, is used to promote solidarity while still recognizing difference. This phrase acknowledges the particular oppressions that indigenous sex workers experience in the Canadian context, but does not minimize the experiences of racialized communities. Johns and clients. Some people called patrons of sex workers, joms, or others called them clients. The term john is a historical term that holds meaning for sex workers, but is often used pejoratively by others. It's a nameless, generic, and dehumanizing word. It's referred to a homogeneous group of men and does not represent the individuality and diversity of our clients. The term also makes invisible the relationship between sex workers and those who purchase our services, that of customers and service providers. By contrast, the term clients is not only more respectful and accurate, it also reinforces the labor context of sex work. Pimps. In the media and public discourse, the word pimp brings to mind very gendered, racialized, and closed images, and class images. I'm sorry. Pimps. In the media and public discourse, the word pimp brings to mind very gendered, racialized, and classed images. It is often used to refer to an exploitative male, most often racialized, and in particular black, and involved in street life. In anti-sex work, feminist literature, and government responses in Bedford versus Canada, the word pimp is consistently used to categorize, limit people with a diversity of personal and professional relationships. The term pimp does not recognize the range of third-party roles, the services they provide, or the relationships they have with sex workers. Predators, perpetrators, aggressors, and black bad clients. Different terminologies used by sex work communities to distinguish the people who violate sex workers. The words predators and perpetrators are used for individuals who may pose as a client, but whose intent is to inflict harm and who may target sex workers. The failure of police to address violence against sex workers lends to the idea that violence against sex workers will not be addressed. Sex workers are targets for such predatory violence because of the conditions of our work namely criminalization that limits our capacity to work safely without being targets for law enforcement. Bad clients and people are disrespectful, for example, time wasters or no-shows. These are also clients who don't respect sex workers' limits or follow the terms of their agreement. The boundary between a bad client and an aggressor is crossed when there is violence. Aggressors are people who initially relate to a sex worker as a client, with whom situational violence occurs. At this point, they're no longer a bad client, 
but an aggressor. These distinctions are important so that people understand the context in which violence against sex workers happens and the precarious legislative conditions in which we work. Although we can be subjected to violence at work, it is not our work itself that is violent. These distinctions also highlight that not all clients are disrespectful, aggressive, or violent. Prostitute, sex worker, and sex professional. American sex worker and activist Carol Leigh coined the term sex worker in the 1970s. Well, before this, the term working girls was popular amongst workers. Creation of the term sex work was a delivery was a deliberate attempt to unite sex workers of all genders and sectors of work and to highlight the work or labor that sex workers are doing. The term sex work is liberation from the deep-rooted negative and legalistic term prostitutes. Some of us call ourselves prostitutes, but recognize there's negative connotations when outsiders use it. People use the word prostitute in different contexts, refer to legislation where the word prostitute is written into law, refer to sex work that involves intercourse with clients, refer to street prostitution to refer to debasing oneself not necessarily in a sexual context and not necessarily in a sexual context and to refer to history when the word prostitute is used with pride how when we use these terms will differ depending on our audience sex workers rejection of the term is often based in how the public perceives prostitutes and prostitution rather than inherent shame in the word itself some sex workers also embrace the term sex professional like sex work, this term highlights and legitimizes the labor context of sex work. Other sex workers find this term alienated because the term professional can imply a level of accreditation that is not afforded to criminalize work. It can also insert a classist element to the work. Some workers are seen as professional while others are not. Not all sex workers have access to the, to the mechanisms that professionalize their work, and many work under precarious conditions. Prostituted women. A gendered term, prostituted women, is sometimes used to refer to sex workers. This term denies the agency of sex workers by suggesting that prostitution is something done to us. Many sex workers consider this framing and language around prostitution or sex work as disrespectful, alienating, and invisibilizing of our realities. Survival sex work slash sex workers. Some communities use survival sex work to refer to sex workers who, due to numerous systemic factors or personal circumstances, poverty, homelessness, drug use, and mental health, have extremely restricted options and as a result work in dangerous circumstances. The term survival sex work has become analogous to street work in difficult circumstances in quotations. However, some high-earning sex workers on the street and those working indoors also consider themselves survival sex workers. While it is true that people do all kinds of work to survive, they're doing it to survive within the context of systemic constraints that exist on a continuum of power and privilege. Systemic issues such as poverty and homelessness should be contested by sex work itself. While it's important to recognize and honor all sex workers, dividing sex workers into categories legitimizes the decisions of some sex workers and not others. Some sex workers or labeless survival sex workers feel the way the term is currently used makes it seem like they are not strong or not capable of making the best decisions for themselves, third parties, third parties, or anyone involved in the sex work transaction where neither the worker nor the client. The term third party is broadened as inclusive people, sex workers, work for agency owners, for example, with agents, bookers, for another example, hire drivers, last example, as well as individuals such as receptionists and security persons. All third parties are criminalized in Canada by procuring laws all referred to as pimping laws. These laws criminalize third parties, in other words, a person who has a work-related relationship with a sex worker. 
No sex workers have a working relationship with a third party, whether it's for advertising, driving, booking, and maintaining clients or providing security. Sex workers can be considered third parties when they work collectively with other sex workers or set up work for another worker. Victim. The term victim is highly contested in sex worker rights and violence against women in DAW communities. Sex workers and other people can be victimized to experience violence. Sex work does not make sex workers victims, but suggests helplessness and lack of agency. Sometimes we are victims of crime, and this victimization should be recognized as the crime is. Unfortunately, in the criminalized context, when sex workers are victims of crime, not only is the violence against their seniors inevitable, but also our legal rights are not respected. Vulnerable or marginalized sex workers. Similar to the terms consensual and adult, some people use the term vulnerable to refer to sex workers. It is often used not as an adjective, but rather to refer to a class of sex workers. Such a framing ignores such a frame ignores that sex workers are vulnerable as a result of outdated prostitution laws and current socioeconomic contexts. In this context, the term marginalization may be more appropriate language to refer to social location and disrespect for human rights rather than branding sex workers as vulnerable. Vulnerability is situational and related to systemic issues that many of us face. The term vulnerable is also used strategically in the legal context like in Bedford versus Canada. The term specifically relates to the charter right to protection from discrimination to concepts of disadvantage, marginalization, and substantive inequality. Wow, I learned a lot. This is what I, I will say. Language does matter, and let's ask people how they want to be referred. It's the same sensitivity we should have to gender pronouns. Honor people's gender pronouns and honor the language that people are comfortable with using around them and not comfortable using around them. And let's prevent all the human rights abuses, all the civil political rights abuses, and all the economic, social, cultural rights abuses, all right? And let's prevent all the human rights abuses in sex work, all the civil political rights abuses in sex work, all the economic, social, cultural rights abuses in sex work. Let's both agree that we should end those things in sex work. Um, let's make sure our definitions are respectful so nobody is demonized. I think I'm, this is part one of humanizing sex workers. I will finish the rest tomorrow.